0: This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein. Today we host a special President's Day edition of Main Street. Presidential scholar Rick Collin of Bismarck interviews historian and author Richard Edelain, an award-winning historian who specializes in the history of the American West. Edeline has written the book Abraham Lincoln, A Western Legacy. It reveals how the 16th president shaped the country beyond the Mississippi River. Having grown up on the frontier and taken part in its political development, Lincoln often turned his attention westward after becoming president.
1: Hello, everyone. With us today is the author of a new book that takes a revealing and a different look at our nation's 16th president. The book is called Abraham Lincoln, A Western Legacy, and it examines the role that Lincoln had in remaking the West. The author is Richard Edelaine, who is an award-winning historian who specializes in the history of the American West. After earning his doctorate in American History and Literature at the University of Oregon, he spent nearly 40 years teaching at Idaho State University and the University of New Mexico before devoting his time to writing. He's now a professor emeritus of history at the University of Mexico, New Mexico, and he's the author or editor of more than 60 books, including two earlier books about Lincoln and the West, Lincoln and Oregon, Country Politics and the Civil War Era, that was published in 2013, and Lincoln Looks West, from the Mississippi to the Pacific, published in 2010. Welcome to the program, Richard. Thanks for being here today. Yes, I enjoy
2: talking about Abraham
1: Lincoln and the West. Well, then I'm in good company, because I love to do that, too, looking forward to our conversation. Uh, You do have a fascination with Lincoln that goes a long way back. Where did it start, or when did it start, and, and why such an interest in our 16th president?
2: I think back around 75 years, I was in a little country school in eastern Washington, way out 20 miles from the nearest town, and we had a wonderful teacher who taught me that Robert E. Lee and Abraham Lincoln were good men. They disagreed with one another, and it led to a civil war, but that didn't mean we threw one out and praised the other. And that was a good beginning for me. You know, I don't remember all the steps, but in high school, I got a chance to talk about Lincoln. And by the time I finished college, I already had the Book of the Month Club, the nine-volume series. And in every step of my training through the doctoral program, when I got a chance, I wrote about Abraham Lincoln.
1: And that has definitely been a theme throughout your your writing career Uh, As I mentioned in the introduction, before you wrote your latest book that we'll be focusing on in this interview, Abraham Lincoln, A Western Legacy, you wrote two earlier books about Lincoln and the West, Lincoln and Oregon Country Politics in the Civil War Era, and Lincoln Looks West from the Mississippi to the Pacific. How did they help you in, in writing this latest book about Lincoln? Well, let's
2: go to the second one that you mentioned, Lincoln Looks West. By that time, I was really convinced that unless I did something, people would still do the North-South Civil War, and that's very important, 65,000 books or so on that subject. I loved the American West, which was my background, and I loved Lincoln. And I had a colleague who said, Dick, why don't you try to put those two together? And I hadn't thought about that. And so the Lincoln Looks West was a collection of essays with a very long, introduction. I almost wrote a book as in the introduction, and then I decided after I'd done that, that collected about 10 really first-rate essays, I would do my own study of a specific region, and my background was the Pacific Northwest, so then I studied how Lincoln impacted Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Western Montana. Those were my beginnings of of Lincoln.
1: So what would be, uh, say, one or two takeaways from your Lincoln and Oregon country politics in the Civil War era book?
2: Well, I think that uh, one of the things we get hung up on, we get so much on slavery, which we should. We get so much on the railroads and on education. But what we don't get is how Lincoln impacted those territories on their way to being states. And I think probably if you're talking about Abraham Lincoln and the West, the railroads and the agricultural things rank very high. But even higher are his impact on the territories. So what I did is I looked at how he impacted these territories in the Pacific Northwest. And that model can be used for the Dakotas. By the way, I just read a manuscript on Abraham Lincoln and California. And that's an example of the kind of thing that could be done. Take Lincoln and compare him or deal with him in either a state or a region. And much
1: is still to be done your new book on the back of the book's cover it writes about how Lincoln has been the subject of nearly 17,000 books uh, the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum says this about your your book no american has been written about more than Abraham Lincoln and that's why it's impressive that Richard W uh, Edeline offers a fresh take that focuses on Lincoln's impact and memorialization in the west so What inspired you to write this uh, latest book on Lincoln and the West?
2: Well, what it did is it just helped me to bring together two things I had separate. I had loved Lincoln since I was 7 or 8 years old, and gradually in graduate school I decided to work on the West because that was my region. I didn't have any money to go to Washington, D.C. or East Coast to study, so I focused on the West. And so about 20 years later, after writing a lot on the West, I decided to put Lincoln and the West together, which some people had done in essay form. Nobody had done it in book form, and although there was one book of collection of essays. And so I decided that I, that was something I could add to Lincoln. When you think about 16,000, 17,000 books, and if you were right now saying, I want to write about Lincoln, you know, what would be one of the subjects you would do? Well, writing about Lincoln's influence or impact on a specific place that's a kind of monographic narrow focus that you could still do and turn up new information.
1: Uh, I'd like to talk just a little bit about the young Lincoln and his formative years. Okay. Uh, early on okay. you, in your book, you described the differences between Lincoln and his father. You write, quote, Thomas found satisfaction in simply getting along as he had done most of his life. He repeated his earlier pattern as a part-time farmer, part-time builder and helper, As one acquaintance called him, he was something of a piddler. Abraham, on the other hand, epitomized a different engaging personality, even shaping what surrounded him rather than going with the flow. The son exuded ambition, the power and purr of which Lincoln's third law partner, William Herndon, later famously compared to, quote, a little engine that knew no rest. So where did that drive come from in Lincoln? Because it surely didn't come from his father. That's right,
2: and you know, I would describe myself in two words. I'm a radical middler, and I mean by that, just taking that subject. There have been some people who just dismissed Thomas and said he was worthless, bad father, and then there are others who praise him too much, and I try to do a complex portrait there. I think part of the definition of Lincoln was bouncing away from his father. There's no question that later on he showed by what he did That he didn't care that much for his father. What he had is two wonderful mothers. His own mother Nancy and his stepmother helped him so much. And his special—I don't know much about the the mother's impact in education, but the stepmom very much encouraged him with education. She encouraged him to read, and that was not something he got from his father. And so there was early on that interest in reading. While he didn't have much formal education, he said about a year, he certainly began to read books. We know some of the books he began to read and know that he became a newspaper fanatic. There was an office nearby where he could read newspapers. And I think the reading of those newspapers early on really gave him a broader knowledge and a thirst for something beyond the outbacks of Southern Indiana.
1: And his mother, I believe she died when he was nine, but his stepmother survived him.
2: Yes, and you know, when he uses that word, I owe everything to my mother, I argue that we really don't know which mother he's talking about because he loved his early mother, biological mother, but his stepmom was really an encourager of him. And everybody said that she was a wonderful, wonderful person. So he got that encouragement. He went through the loss of his own mom, the loss of his younger brother, and the loss of his sister fairly early in her first childbirth. Well, that meant he was the only one surviving, and she was very encouraging of what he was doing. So that stepmom, to me, maybe, was even more the encourager than his own mom.
1: Now Lincoln served very briefly in Congress. He had just one two-year term in the House. He represented Illinois. As a member of the Whig Party from 1847 to 49, he was the only Whig member in that nine-member Illinois delegation, and one of his actions in that Congress, he was quite critical of President James Knox Polk's handling of the Mexican War. In a speech he delivered in the House Chambers in early 1848, you write that he was, quote, surprisingly aggressive in his criticism of Polk. He accused the president of what he called the sheerest deception, and what was that about?
2: You know the reason I say that is because if you look at the later Lincoln when he's in the presidency he's much more willing to work both sides of the kind of a issue here he was really uh flying his political arms and you know we Americans don't know much about the whigs because they're they're reacting to uh, Andrew Jackson when they get started in the early 30s and they're ending by the early 50s and that meant that Lincoln was sort of 20 years and in the in those four two years that he was in Congress, he was toward the end, and there was no question that the Whigs were fighting the possibility of being outnumbered by the Democrats and pushed aside and I think he was very partisan and so he was attacking the opponent, the Democrat uh, and he had heard some things critical of Polk, and he uh, accepted them and so when he began in December and in January of that first year, and it's 47, he is very, very critical. Interestingly enough, here again is the middle of the road. He can be anti-Polk and the war, but pro-military and supportive of the soldiers. So there was that double thing happening right there in the early part of his life.
1: As we talk about, Lincoln grew up on the frontier. He took part in his political development, and he turned westward naturally once he was elected president in many ways. Uh, 1862, of course, is a big year. He's one year into his presidency, and he signs into law three bills that had major impacts on the West, the Homestead Act, the creation of a Department of Agriculture, and the Land-Grant College Act, better known as the Morrill Act. Let's talk a little bit about Uh, each one of those the homestead act uh, what exactly did that do what kind of impact has that had
2: you need to understand lincoln's philosophy at this point he shied away from his dad's agricultural background but by 59 before he becomes president goes north to wisconsin and he gives a very stimulating speech on about the things he's going to do to help farmers and remember if you're a pragmatic politician most of your votes are going to come from farmers So one of the things that Lincoln wants to do, and remember this is going to be the second election of a Republican because they had lost in 56. So he's looking for things that he can do to bring voters into the Republican party. So there's a pragmatic purpose. But he also really morally believes that you ought to support farmers and you ought to support the military. So he believed that not only did you help farmers, but you would help soldiers. And you would do it by uh, getting them 160 acres in the West. And so that was something that the Republican Party was already standing for in 56 and then later in 60. So when Lincoln supports it, and it's passed in Congress in 62, he is supporting something the Republican Party has already done. And also Lincoln believed, as a Whig but now a Republican, Congress ought to do that, not the presidency. So he pushed them to do that, but then he was very supportive because he thought both pragmatically and morally this was a good thing to do. 160 acres of land that you could get, uh, being on it for five years, improving it, as it said, and really then paying just maybe $5 or so, and you had 160 acres. And in very fertile areas, that was wonderful. In desert-like areas— New Mexico, where I was for a while, it was said you need 160 acres to raise one cow. That that didn't work very well in the dry areas, but in places like your Dakota's, that was very good in the fertile farmland.
1: And it did actually a couple of big waves of population growth uh, happened uh, in this part of the country because of that Homestead Act. We had like more than 100,000 people settle in northern Dakota Territory from about 1880 to 86, and then there was a second wave that came in toward the end of the 19th century, into about 1915.
2: It, it's intriguing when we think about, uh, the, say, 35 years from the end of Lincoln's life to 1900, and all those policies were in effect, but the largest numbers of homesteaders were in the period from 1900 to 1920. And part of it was, not only would they have the grassy green areas of Dakotas, they would have the newly irrigated areas. So that opened up uh, Idaho and Utah and parts of California that were dry, but now they had irrigation possibilities.
1: So that really brought in a new group. And how about the Land-Grant College Act, also known, better known actually as the Morrill Act? What did it do exactly? What was its impact?
2: Well, think about this. That means that every state, now not a territory, but state, every state would get 90,000 acres because they get 30,000 for every member of Congress. Since every state had two senators and at least one congressman, they got 90,000 acres. That meant a lot because they could use that then to sell and to support colleges, land-grant colleges as they uh, called them. There was some wincing in the West about that because you could take the 90,000 acres. It didn't have to be in your own state. It could be just government land in the United States. Well, the most open areas were west of the Mississippi. So that meant that Massachusetts could take its 90,000 acres in the West someplace and then use that for investment. Well, what it did is it established what are land-grant institutions. I can't remember whether Fargo is a land-grant institution. They very much did things to support agriculture and to bring farmers into education.
1: You are right. North Dakota State University in Fargo is a land-grant college. Actually, when it opened in the late 19th century, it was initially called North Dakota Agricultural College. And then there was a vote in 1960 statewide where the Uh, North Dakotans voted to change the name to North Dakota State University. Now he also pushed for a transcontinental railroad supporting legislation in Congress to achieve that goal. Of course that was a big uh, huge development as well.
2: Right and that goes back quite a ways. Uh, When Lincoln was a, a very successful lawyer in Illinois as he was building his political background and also doing quite well as a lawyer He was a lead lawyer for Illinois Central, and Illinois Central was expanding. What really Lincoln pushed for in 1862 as a president, he'd already pushed for within Illinois because the Whigs were really strong on internal improvements. By the way, it didn't work very well in Illinois, but Lincoln pushed for it. And part of that was connection and linkage with the railroads. And then he became a railroad lawyer. So he knew a lot about railroads, before he went into the White House. But again, he wanted Congress to pass that, and then he signed it. And he thought that by this time, you see, California had become a state in 1850, and he was a little bit afraid and wincing that if you go all the way from Illinois to California, we might lose California. And there were rumors in 1861-62, after the Southerners went out, that maybe a place like California would go with them, even though it was a free state. So he wanted, in a way, to connect the north as what he had wanted with a place like California and later Oregon, and he could do it through the railroads. So he really pushed for that railroad in 1862, then Renewal in 64, and part of that connection was to develop the west and to connect the west with the rest of the country.
1: And he also created the U.S. Department, or actually Congress did uh, with legislation that he signed, created the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now, how was that beneficial?
2: You know, in a way, that department was a little bit like those land-grant colleges. What it did is it collected studies, and that's what he asked for in 59 and then pushed in 62. He wanted the people that did studies, whether it was census, whether it was economists, to do studies, rather than just the farmers themselves, that the scholars, the students, could provide information that would be helpful, beneficial fertilizers, and things that would be helpful to the farmers, and financial support, things that they could do to support, and build connections between the farmers and the railroads. And that was a very important thing. It didn't always work well, because in many ways the railroads dominated the farmers and had their way in a way with farmers. But he thought that partnership, that linkage, was a very good one. So he saw railroads and farmers being linked together.
1: Now that um, U.S. Department of Agriculture didn't have cabinet status right away. It took a while for that to happen.
2: That's correct, and I don't know exactly when that happened. What it did is it brought a scientific side, an administrative side, to something before that, that wasn't
0: there. This is Main Street on Prairie Public, and we are listening to a special President's Day conversation between presidential historian Rick Collin and author Richard Edelain about his book, Abraham Lincoln, A Western Legacy. After this break, Lincoln and American Indian lands. You don't have to leave the country to explore the vibrant
3: world of public broadcasting, but you will need a passport. Introducing the Prairie Public Passport, bringing the quality of public television right to your fingertips. You can watch hundreds of hours of Downton Abbey, The Great British Baking Show, Nova, Antiques Roadshow, Austin City Limits, and much, much more on demand anytime to stream on a range of platforms, including computers, smartphones, tablets, and at pbs.org. Plus, enjoy original Prairie Public Productions, such as Germans from Russia. Just go to prairiepublic.org, click the Donate button, and for a $5 or more monthly sustaining membership or a minimum $60 annual gift, you'll automatically have access to the rich, vast, and growing library of PBS. It's just one more way we can say thank you for your support. And you won't even have to take a lousy photo. The Prairie Public Passport. Unlock yours today at
0: prairiepublic.org. This is Main Street, and today we're sharing a special President's Day conversation between presidential historian Rick Cullen and author Richard Edelain about his book, Abraham Lincoln, A Western Legacy. Edelain discusses how Lincoln opened American Indian lands to settlers who forever changed the
1: landscape and laid the foundation for the region's modern politics and identity. Richard, let's talk some about uh, Lincoln's American Indian policy. What was his record?
2: I love Abraham Lincoln, but I can't love him for what happened in his relationships with Native Americans. But at the same time, I can explain it. Uh, Lincoln's grandfather had been killed by Indians. He didn't say much about that, so I don't know how much that carried and it never was talked much about until later. Uh, when he was getting ready for politics, he became involved in a conflict with Indians moving from a little bit from the west and then into Illinois, but no shooting was involved. So those were his two contacts, one— with grandfather death and then with being in the service. What happens when he gets into the White House is people, both non-Indian and Indian, make contact with him. But you know, if you look at a day-by-day record, Lincoln sometimes is sending anywhere from 20 to 30 to maybe 40 telegrams per day. And they're almost all dealing with military and the Civil War so that what his life was is so full of trying to win a civil war that he didn't see Native American experiences tied to that. And so when uh, Indian leaders would contact him or people who were supportive of Native Americans or indigenous people, as we're saying now, he said, yes, I will, as soon as I am able to do something, I will do something. But he was supportive of what was a policy by cabinet members at that point, and that was to push Indians off of lands that would be available to farmers and put them on reservations and turn them into farmers, and he supported that. So what you see is Lincoln was fairly uh, supportive of what was happening now. When we look back on it our 150 years later, we think that he was very anti-Indian. Well, he wasn't anti Indian, but he didn't do things to help them. I would give him either a D or an F in that. He just was not good in that area.
1: What was his role in the U.S. Dakota War of 1862, then known as the Sioux Uprising?
2: That's a very interesting question, and uh, I'll say to you what I did in my class. I would tell students, give the background and details, in which quickly settlers had pushed the Indians off of Indian lands. Indians came back and attempted to push whites back off of that area. There was a lot of conflict. There were quite a few settlers that were killed, so a lot of Indians. Uh, Lincoln quickly sent military there, and once the military arrived, they quickly subdued the Indians. And the military was very, very negative in this treatment of Indians. And they eventually, after uh, winning the conflict, They said 303 Indians ought to be hanged, and they sent that report. This is 1862 to Lincoln. It's early fall. And when it arrives in Lincoln's desk, he looks at it and thinks that this is really not right. So he has lawyers and other people look at it, and eventually he decides that there will be about 37 or 38 people that will be guilty of two things, of either murder or rape and they then will be hanged. Here's what I always ask my students. All right, now, 303, he saves roughly 260 lives, but he allows the largest mass hanging in the history of the United States uh, the day after Christmas. Which do you think is the most negative and the most positive? My students, every class I put that to, saw the negativity on the 38 that lost their lives. And when I bring it up in general audiences, pretty much that's the same, too. I, I don't see it that way. I see that he saw these people that, after looking and researching each person, that the 38 people deserved capital punishment and the others did not. And I think the saving of 260 lives, because the military were going to hang all of them. So he saved 260 lives, but he allowed 38. And as I say, it's it's a divided opinion. I'm more for the saving of the 260 than the loss of 38. But we've got to wince at 38 hangings, too, on that day.
1: His clemency created a lot of resentment, enough so that he won Minnesota by just a very small margin in 1864 over his Democratic opponent, who was General George McClellan. And Alexander Ramsey, who was had been governor during the eighteen sixty two uprising he was then
2: i I know the quote you're going to use, and yep. it's a good one go ahead yep. then yeah.
1: you you know it exactly. He told Lincoln yeah. that if he had executed more Sioux, more Indians, he could have won the state by a landslide, and Lincoln said
2: Lincoln said he didn't want to do that, and yep. as I heard it one time, more hangings, more votes mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I could she, not hang men for votes. What happens here? I'm convinced as a historian that every generation we change the way we look at the past because we're changing the present, and the present always has an impact on the past. Now, we in history call it presentism to be very careful not to superpose all the values of the present on the past. If you do that, Lincoln doesn't stand up very well for present-day idealism. He stands up very well in his own times. And so when you look back and you look at these things that he decided upon, many people will throw darts at him because he doesn't live up to the idealistic standards that people have in 2023.
1: And that's a good segue into my next question about the literature of Lincoln and how it's evolved and been in many stages uh, during the 160 years since his death. Uh, decade by decade, that's changed, ups and downs. A couple of key landmarks that, that you point out in your book were first the 10-volume biography of Lincoln by his secretaries, John Nicolay and John Hay, who worked on that for more than a decade. They were finally published in 1890, 25 years after Lincoln's death. And then the second was a two-volume set called The Life of Abraham Lincoln, written by a veteran journalist and biographer named Ida uh, Tarbell, and that was published 10 years later in 1900. And why was her work so important?
2: I made the distinction with two words, idealistic and realistic, and some of the idealistic ones that came right afterwards, even really uh, within a year or two after Lincoln's death, because they were kind of memorializing lincoln but by time they get the 10 volume one they had access to all the lincoln papers that people didn't have until the late 1940s because the sun didn't allow researchers to get in so they were able to do a lot i've never read all 10 but i've breezed through that it's pretty much military history so it didn't address as much as i would think she does in those two volumes and she has some questions about lincoln what she's doing is praising Lincoln generally, but raising some questions too. And that's why the people who've looked at the, what we call the Lincoln historiography, the changing interpretations of Lincoln, that she's seen as more of a realist. And she's different than uh, some of the people right in the 20th century who are really sometimes idealistic or extremely critical, as some people are too. And what she did is she made steps in saying, yes, Abraham Lincoln had these strengths, but at the same time, he had the reservations of not dealing enough with slavery and not doing enough for Native Americans.
1: One of my favorite parts of your book is your very last section where you write basically a chapter called Essay on Sources. And you talk about your different areas of research and the different books and biographies that have come out uh, over the years with Lincoln. If you could pick out one or two really top-notch biographies of Lincoln, what would they be?
2: Well, my top one for the general audience is Doris Kern Goodwin, the team of rivals, because I believe the problem academic historians have is they write for one another. And I was guilty of that, too, because when you're in a history department, your publications are evaluated primarily by your colleagues, and you make through what's called promotion and for tenure, largely with your colleagues. But by the time I got my tenure after about 10 years, then I wanted to write for general audiences, for my wife and my daughter, who are both librarians. I wanted them to be able to like myself. And I think Doris Gerns Goodwin is a wonderful example of a storytelling historian. She has her Ph.D. in political science in government, and she's able to tell stories in a wonderful way that appeal both to the scholars like myself, and to the general readers. Well, if I were to go beyond that, I love the writings of Ronald White, and he's done a a great deal of writing. Probably other people would uh, talk about Michael Burlingame because he's done two big, fat volumes, and he continues to write. Sidney Blumenthal is doing a five-volume. He's done three volumes now. He's a journalist, and he's got more storytelling power. And with uh, Burlingame, it's more the scholarly. There's a new one out just this year. I haven't read it yet, but I certainly want to. John Meacham's And Then There Was Light. Everything John Meacham writes is like Doris Kearns Goodwin. Those are some of the biographies
0: people ought to pay attention to. This is Main Street on Prairie Public, and we are listening to a special President's Day conversation between presidential historian Rick Cullen and author Richard Edelain about his book, Abraham Lincoln, A Western Legacy. After this break, Lincoln and Mount Rushmore. Hi, I'm David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Radio Hour on Prairie Public. And while we're proudly rooted in the city that bears our name, we bring you an hour of radio that's just as enlightening and entertaining in North Dakota or wherever you call home. Every Saturday at 3 p.m. Central, you're tuning in for revealing conversations with newsmakers, authors and artists and you'll get the real stories behind the news from some of the top journalists in america my award-winning colleagues at the new yorker not to mention the coolest theme music in public radio thanks to merrill garbus of Toon yards so get in a new yorker state of mind every weekend on prairie public This is Main Street on Prairie Public, and we continue a special President's Day conversation between presidential historian Rick Cullen and author Richard Edelain about his book, Abraham Lincoln, A Western Legacy. We continue the interview with Cullen talking to Edelain about the history of Mount Rushmore in South Dakota and, of course, President Lincoln.
1: Let's talk about Mount Rushmore. A very interesting section of your book is your coverage of how that memorial and the Black Hills in South Dakota came about. You could not put that part of the book down. Once I started reading that, I had to finish your section on Mount Rushmore. You write about the challenges and the conflicts involved in carving those four presidential faces on the mountain, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt. Um, historian Don Robinson and U.S. Senator Peter Norbeck of South Dakota, key names in the development of Mount Rushmore. Who were they and what were some of the challenges that they faced?
2: Okay, two kind of background stories here. The South Dakota Press wanted to do a series on the four presidents, and they asked me to do the Lincoln one because I had done that. So I began to say, all right, uh, I need to know much more about Goodson Borglum, the, the sculptor who had so much about it. I knew quite a bit about Lincoln, but I didn't know much about Borglum. So I went to South Dakota and looked at all the archives that were most germane to that, and i was able to see don robinson had his idea he was a historian journalist but he wanted to bring more tourists to south dakota and so he was thinking about some of those spire like uh, rock formations there in the western part of south dakota and he wanted to do uh, major western figures uh, like lewis and clark and maybe custer maybe some native american leaders and eventually he went to Go- Gutz and Borglum, who was doing other sort of sculpting. And uh, Borglum is the one who introduced the four presidents. So they moved from Western figures to those presidential figures. And what happened is Borglum, and you can see in my point of view, the way I deal with Borglum, my middle of the I want to praise him, and I want to also bring the criticism because he was a complex figure. Well, Don Robinson and the political figure were very supportive, but they had the difficulties of dealing with the personality of Borglum. And I need to be careful here. Mr. Borglum had the personality of some of our strong political leaders who say, I'll do it myself. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted government money, but then he wanted to slap the hand of government and say, don't bother me. I'll do it all. Well, those politicians and Doan Robinson get caught in between. How in the world do you deal with that? You want to support it, you think the project is good, but this guy running this, who's a wonderful sculptor, is a terrible leader, and it was difficult for them. I give them a lot of credit for working on this very difficult situation.
1: Now, Borglum said this about Lincoln, this is the man that has to be included Uh, Lincoln was obviously his favorite president, even named a son, Lincoln. Right. Lincoln was the centerpiece, uh, as far as he was concerned, about Mount Rushmore.
2: Yes. He used this word again and again. Lincoln was the savior of the United States. You know, he had the founders in uh, Jefferson and Washington. He had Lincoln as the savior. And in many ways, it's hard to rationalize Theodore Roosevelt. Not that he didn't as we see now in our time, belonged there, but he had been there, he'd only been gone for about less than 10 years. So he had this, that favorite word, and there's no question. He started with Lincoln and Jefferson, but it didn't take him long, and there's no question that his favorite person was Lincoln. Interesting, because you see, he came from a LDS, Mormon background, a polygamous family, and the Mormons were not very supportive of Lincoln because Lincoln named people to Utah that they didn't like very well. But Borglum grew up very supportive of Lincoln and he wanted to memorialize. You know, here's a good question. If you want to ask yourself, what's the importance of those presidents? In Borglum's mind, and since we're talking about Lincoln, we can just narrow it down. He wanted to memorialize Lincoln in the most realistic but also kind of dramatic way and he thought what he was doing in Mount Rushmore would do that. Somebody wants to write a best-selling novel or a biography or do a film but he wanted to do it on that rocky side there in western South Dakota. Memorialize Lincoln in the most dramatic and realistic way.
1: And it's interesting to read in your book that he was uh, Borglum was actually quite critical of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington D.C., which so many of us praise. Yeah. Why was he so critical of the Lincoln Memorial? He thought, <laughs> and
2: this is Borglum, my ideas are better than those eggheads out there on the East Coast. He didn't use the eggheads, but he thought what they were doing is taking Lincoln and put him in an Athenian cathedral, you know. In other words, you're putting Lincoln into a classical Greek sort of cathedral, and that's not Lincoln. You needed to put him in the West and you needed to make him a westerner. Well, you know, he did have an idea that was never finished. He wanted those heads to come down and have the bodies, but they never got down to that in the Mount Rushmore. And it would have been interesting what kind of clothing he would have put on Lincoln. When he did the earlier Lincoln things, he made Lincoln not look like an outback, but at least a frontiersman, not a person in the midst of a kind of artistic cathedral. So he felt Lincoln was put in the wrong atmosphere and therefore was interpreted the wrong way in Washington, D.C.
1: And you also point out that he wanted to avoid uh, what he thought were mistakes that other sculptors had made. He worked on his eyes. That was important to him on the Mount Rushmore sculpture. And, you know,
2: I hadn't thought about that. I didn't start this project until I'd been to Mount Rushmore about three times. And I looked up a lot, but I just hadn't thought about how they provided the section that moves out. It's about eight inches one way and maybe a couple feet the other way. And when I was there the last time, yes, you look up there and you can see an expression in the eyes that was much more lively than quite often the the dead eyes of a lot of sculptures. And he also wanted to make sure that there was the right side being impressive more than the left side because Lincoln quite often tried to get the photographs where they got his right side because he thought that was his better side. And so he wanted to emphasize that.
1: And there was also debate about including his beard. Borglum wanted it. Senator Norbick did not, but Borglum won out.
2: That's right. Yeah, and there's an example. And not only does Borglum win out, he's going to win out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, amazing character. And you know what Uh happens, I think, finally they say this, and I, I do too, that no Borglum, no Mount Rushmore. In spite of Borglum's difficulties to work with, He did that magnificent memorial, and those politicians and the government officials, like Coolidge and Roosevelt, presidents, very supportive, made sure that money was coming, and together they were able to hop over that big barrier and get the job done.
1: And, and of course, the reactions to Mount Rushmore have not all been positive. Uh, You note in in your book, a 2002 book by a journalist named Jesse Larner, the book's called Mount Rushmore, an icon, reconsidered, and Larner maintains a monument is not a salute to notable presidents, but instead it's a symbol of manifest destiny and Borglum's racist dismissal of anyone who wasn't white. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Yeah.
2: Well, I think that's an overreaction. And again, by this middle-of-the-road thing, that what you do, whether it's Abraham Lincoln uh, 1861 to 65. And if you're Borglum with his background and working in the 1920s and 30s, slightly into the 40s, you're a product of that time. What that man is doing in writing would never have been said in the 1930s. Now, there's no question in my mind that we're coming to a place where we're identifying and understanding more of the importance of, I'm going to use, Indian, Native American, indigenous figures. I agree to that. We should, we should do that, and we're finally being coming around to that. But you shouldn't be so positive pro to those that then you make negative to the people who don't rise to what your point of view is, and that, that author did that. He, he's, he's an opposite of Borglum. He's going to do it his way, and if you don't do it that way, you're going to be criticized.
1: I thought you made an excellent point in your book with this passage. You write, quote, If truth be accepted, none of the presidents on the memorial fulfilled the demanding guidelines for ideal political leadership championed by some early 21st century opinion makers. Washington and Jefferson were slaveholders. Lincoln, although supportive of more rights for African-Americans with his Emancipation Proclamation and 13th Amendment, never accepted African-Americans as equally Uh, as equal to whites, Theodore Roosevelt, more accepting of blacks than the 19th century presidents had trouble with American Indians. Before he entered the White House, Roosevelt had infamously said, quote, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indian is the dead Indian, but I believe that 9 out of every 10 are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the 10th. You know, when
2: you look at that, that gives you the opportunity to decide how are you going to interpret those people? If you want to talk about the shortcomings, they had them. Uh, you and I have them too. And our friends, we hope will see both the strengths and maybe the limitations and not be so critical. Some people, and this is what we call presentism, they take present day values as sort of godlike, heaven-like, and they're going to superimpose those. And because Washington and Jefferson were slave owners, they're dismissed as slave owners and not much besides that. And Lincoln, because he didn't believe whites and blacks were equal in all regards, is a racist. Well, if you mean by that, that he didn't believe blacks and whites were equal in all things, yes, he is by our definition racist. But think of all the things he did, too to try to end the civil war and to bring us back to agreement. Think about that wonderful ending speech that he gave in which he was not going to throw darts and he was going to allow the Southerners to go home. He was building, really rebuilding what in fact American democracy ought to be. So I want to emphasize, yes, they had some shortcomings but they have an even more strengths.
1: Uh, Richard, we're coming toward the end of our interview. Unfortunately, we could easily visit with you much longer. Each face on Mount Rushmore, did it have its own individual dedication, or was it just one grand dedication finally?
2: They each had their single dedications, and it was interesting. They had President Roosevelt for one. (laughs) Some people say that Borglum did even more to draw people when he did the the Lincoln one. I don't remember who the speakers were at the number one and number four, so at the washington and the Theodore roosevelt i think borglum did roosevelt also so there were there were individuals they didn't do one where they did all four of them they did the individuals and uh, they had hoped to do some other things but of course borglum dies and they don't get funding to finish everything
1: as uh, mount rushmore was being uh, developed over the years it was a huge tourism attraction my my father-in-law dean wingsher he grew up in wild rose and Northwest North Dakota in the 20s and 30s. And I remember he used to tell me that he remembered several times when his parents would get in the car and they drive to the Black Hills to see how the work on on Mount Rushmore was progressing.
2: I think if you go there with a middle-of-the-road approach, you will see things there that dramatize our history in a very positive way. I realize that Native Americans have a point that some of that land was taken from them. I realize that, and I accept that as a drawback, but I also see this as a memorialization that I think is very positive.
1: And then just this quick side note as we wrap up our our talk on Mount Rushmore here. The last living carver, I was reading this as I was doing uh, preparation for the interview. He died November 2019 at the age of 98. Nick Clifford, he was from nearby Keystone, South Dakota, one of the nearly 400 men and women who worked to carve those images on Mount Rushmore during the 14 years it took to complete. He worked there from 1938 to 40, and he earned a grand total of 55 cents an hour. (laughs)
2: Can you imagine what we know about Borglum, how it would have been a challenge to work with him when he would have pointed his finger and said, do it and get it done. And his son Lincoln seems to have been a model of liking his father and working for his father. So you see the positive side of Borglum, and I want that emphasized. No Borglum, probably no Mount Rushmore.
1: So as we wrap up our interview today, what do you think is the most important takeaway or two from, from your book, Lincoln, A Western Legacy?
2: Well, the relationship of knowing that Lincoln's ties and links to the American West are very important. Don't overlook them. Don't forget the North and the South because slavery was there. But do remember that Lincoln was so much involved with the West because he was afraid slavery would go to the West it didn't want that to happen, and so probably the major thing at beginning was Lincoln wanted to save the West from slavery. And I think it's important to see that Lincoln was a forward-looking guy. He saw the West as future, and he was uh, attempting to develop it.
1: Have you had any other books come out since Lincoln: A Western Legacy was published in late 2020?
2: I have four new books coming out this year.
1: So uh, you are busy. Two
2: academic. Two academic books and two memoirs, so it's, uh, that's my life. Two, still an academic,
1: but also writing for the general public. That's wonderful. <laughs> what are the memoirs?
2: Uh, the memoirs are growing up on a bass sheep ranch in eastern Washington, and I'm a lifetime evangelical, and I went to a college, Northwest Nazarene College in Namp, Idaho, and so I wrote the memoir, but I'm doing that privately because that wouldn't have as much of an appeal. But the memoir... Uh, about growing up on the Bass Sheep Ranch, Washington State University Press, because that's where it is in eastern Washington, is going to publish it next month.
1: Where can people go to find out more about your work and all the books and other writings you've been publishing over the years?
2: That'll be 61, 62, 63, 64. In the 65, if they go to Amazon, pretty much all are on
1: sale. I'd like to thank my guest today, Richard Edelain, author of Abraham Lincoln, a Western Legacy from the South Dakota Historical Society Press. Uh, Thank you, Richard. Really uh, have enjoyed uh, uh, visiting with you today. My joy. Thank you. I'm Rick Collin. Thanks also to all of you Prairie Public Radio listeners for joining us today.
0: Our thanks to Bismarck-based presidential historian Rick Cullen and author Richard Edelain, author of the book Abraham Lincoln, A Western Legacy. Dakota book is next. Support for Prey Public is provided by Touchmark at Harwood Groves Fargo
3: and on West Century in Bismarck. Touchmark offers maintenance-free living so residents have more time to enjoy what they love. Fresh prepared meals, health and fitness club, and a full calendar of events with friends nearby. Learn more at touchmark.com. This is
4: Dakota Daybook for February 20th. In February of 1912, the city of Minot celebrated the new library in town. After funds were secured with money from the New York philanthropist, Andrew Carnegie, construction quickly followed. Carnegie offered $15,000 for the construction with additional money from the Minot Women's Literary Club for furniture and decorations. A beautiful building was built. Focal points were a fireplace and a copy of a famous painting, Hope, by the pre-Raphaelite artist, Edward Byrne Jones. The opening celebration took place on February 19th and included speeches by the head of the library board and city council. Several musical performances entertained, and punch was served to end the evening. At the time of the opening, the Minot Public Library had a bright future. The library already had more than 3,000 borrowers, the third highest in the state. Sixty percent of the library books were fiction and its collections also included 47 different magazines. The building's construction and furnishings were praised, and it was described as well-lit, with the books easy to reach and plenty of tables and easy chairs. On this date in 1932, 20 years later, the library celebrated its growth. One of the many librarians, Catherine McSherry, believed that the library had never served as many people as it did then. Unemployment, due to the Great Depression, was undoubtedly a factor in bringing in large numbers, with many unemployed persons using the library to study. The library had seen an increase in borrowers, with up to 9,700 people using the library regularly. A grand total of 173,361 books had circulated in the previous year. Though the purpose of the library has changed since its opening, and undoubtedly has changed more since the 20th anniversary, the Minot Public Library still stands as a popular place for Minot residents. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. Hi, I'm Dave Thompson. Join me Tuesday for Morning Edition on Prairie Public. NPR will bring you news from the nation and the world, and I'll have the latest stories from North Dakota and the prairie region, along with the day's weather. Listen beginning at 4 a.m. Central on member supported Prairie Public, North Dakota's home for NPR.
0: And that's a wrap for this special President's Day edition of Main Street. Remember, you can listen to this interview again and all editions of Main Street at prairiepublic.org. We hope you'll be back with us tomorrow. Thanks again for joining us and have a great rest of your day.